It's nice to see everybody on a nice spring morning, huh? I think we're just bypassing Christmas and going to go right into spring. I don't know if anybody complained about that. I certainly won't complain about that, but uh, some people might complain about that. Actually, Christmas is coming up. As hard as it is to believe, the weather isn't cooperating, but Christmas is coming up and we plan to have, as Jeff mentioned, a, a great Christmas service and uh, Christmas Eve. Certainly next week and then Christmas Eve, which is Thursday, going to be a Thursday night, believe it or not. And uh, it's a great time, especially Christmas Eve, to invite those who don't know Jesus Christ to come. Uh, the message comes out loud and clear. So if you're you know, kind of timid, one of the ways that you can uh, kind of, I guess, mini-evangelize... It's just invite him to a service and say, hey, you know, it's Christmas, and it's pretty easy to do that, you know, just kind of slip it in there. And we got a Christmas Eve service, uh, love to have you come, and uh, so uh, why don't you try that out, and I, I think really they'll be blessed. So I just want to remind you, Christmas Eve is Thursday night, a uh, week from this Thursday night, and if you've got people that you've been wanting to witness to, this would be a great way to do that. All right. Well, there was this Sunday school teacher. How many here have been Sunday school teachers? Yeah. yeah. God bless you. Huh? No, I don't mean that in a negative way. <laughs> Suckers, no. <laughs> it's going to be a long morning. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> But uh, there was a Sunday school teacher, and she was trying to get across the message that, you know, God is the creator God, and, and, and explain that. And then she got into how God created human beings. He created Adam, and there was little Johnny. And little Johnny really got interested as she talked about how uh, Eve came from one of Adam's ribs. I mean, that just really fascinated him and whatnot. And uh, later that week, uh, little Johnny was lying on his bed, and it seemed as if he was ill. And his mother came in and said, little Johnny, little Johnny, is there anything wrong? And he said, yeah, yeah, I got this pain uh, in my side, and I think I'm going to have a wife. Uh, I want to tell little Johnny it's not quite that easy, but... <laughs> Well, now that we got that over with, this morning I want to continue our study in the book of Ephesians, and I've entitled the message, Who Are You? Who Are You? Lord, I do enjoy the gift of humor. It certainly is a tremendous gift, and I thank you for each person that was able to make it this morning. I know there's a lot of sickness going around, and we pray for those that are sick, Lord. It's not a great time of the year to be sick. And I do pray that this time of year would be special to each and every person here. That we'd get beyond the presence. We'd get beyond the parties. We'd get beyond the lights. And that we would be able to really experience the greatest miracle, I believe of all, God visiting this planet and becoming a baby. That is beyond comprehension. That is beyond comprehension. And I pray that we will be fascinated with that wonder this time of year and all that it means and what it means to us. And as we continue our study in looking at Ephesians, 
I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would now come. You are welcome here. That you would give us soft hearts to really receive your word. You would give us ears to hear. Your words can change our lives. They are eternal words. They are life-changing words. They are meant to set us free. And I pray that for each and every person here. I ask, as always, that you would fill me from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head. And that your kingdom will now would be accomplished in these next several minutes. And I just ask for this in your precious name. Amen. Let's say someone were to come up to you and they were to ask you, who are you? Who are you? How would you answer that question? I'm sure some of us would just simply give our name. Others might give our social security number. Some of us might be able to recite our family lineage. Others of us might talk about maybe the college that we went to, what we majored in, the degrees that we have, the job that we presently have right now. Again, if someone asked you, who are you, how would you answer that question? Well, the Apostle Paul answers that question for the believer in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 19. So if you have your Bibles, your owner's manual, you can turn there. It certainly is worth marking up. If you do not, it's up on here on the screen. Paul writes these words, consequently... You are no longer foreigners and aliens. He's specifically speaking about the Greeks there, the Gentiles. That's what most of us are. But fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Paul gives us here three images, three pictures of what it means to be a believer. He tells us who we are. He gives us our identity in these three images. So I'd like to look at each one of those. First, Paul says that we are now citizens of heaven. In other words, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are born again and you are his follower, you are a citizen of heaven. In fact, he makes it more clear even in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Skip, you can put that up there. And he simply says, but our citizenship is in heaven. We believers are citizens now of heaven. And I can imagine many of you are thinking, no, I am a citizen of the United States. And that's exactly what our problem is. Most of us really believe that we are citizens of the United States. And because we think that we are citizens of the United States, we think like Americans. And if you think like an American, you're going to tend to act like an American. Have you ever wondered what it means to be American? We talk about being an American, right? What does it exactly mean? Well, I was actually doing and, and looking at numerous studies and polls on, on what is considered to be American. And, and here's what we, we came up with, all right? Here's what was the, the composite picture. No particular order here, all right? So number one, here's what Americans value. Here's what makes you American. Number one, freedom. Freedom of worship and freedom to pursue your dreams. Secondly, individuality. That means the right to be me. That also means the right to be a pain in the gluteus maximus. 
Thirdly, democracy. We believe in democracy. No king here, but the ability to select our own representatives. Number four, capitalism. If you're an American, you really got to believe in capitalism, which is the ability to own, to distribute, and to make a profit. And do we know how to make a profit? Yes, sir, Bob. All right. And finally, morality. But no longer is it the Judeo-Christian ethic or morality. That's the old morality, sadly. By the way, that's why most people, when you ask Americans, do they consider themselves a Christian, they will because they remember the Judeo-Christian ethic. But sadly, we're no longer a Judeo-Christian nation, really. And now the new morality. You know what the new morality is? Tolerance. The new morality is tolerance and freedom of expression with one guideline. You know what the guideline is? As long as no one gets hurt, whatever that means. So the new morality is tolerance, freedom of expression, as long as no one gets hurt. That's what it means to be an American. Now, tragically, so many Believers, so many American Christians believe that the values I just mentioned are actually Christian values. Did you know that? We have merged together being an American with Christianity, and we've kind of gotten a weird hybrid. I want you to remember, if you consider yourself born again, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you are are no longer a citizen of this country. You are now a citizen of heaven. You are a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. There is no dual citizenship whatsoever. When Jesus Christ stood before the Roman procurator, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, Skip, can you put that picture up? Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus didn't shy away from it. He said, I am a king. But listen very clearly what he said now in John chapter 8 and verse 36. He said this. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. What Jesus is saying is that if you pulled out a globe and you looked for Jesus' kingdom... You wouldn't find it on a globe. It's no place on planet earth right now. Right now, Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, resides in two places. The first place it resides is in heaven itself. We call that the eternal dimension. That is where God resides. The second place the kingdom of heaven resides is in the hearts and the minds of men and women and children who have received Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. They have become born again. They are followers of Jesus. And when you become born again, his kingdom values become ensconced in your mind and in your heart, and you begin to be transformed, and you begin to look like Jesus Christ. And we are told, and we studied the book of Revelation last year, and I believe with all of my heart still that Jesus' second coming is very close. I really believe with all of my heart, as you look at the world events, you are watching the nations of the world apostatizing, pulling away, and you're going to continue to see that. You're going to continue to see globalism occurring, moving towards a one-world government and a one-world politic and a one-world economic. 
And we are told at the end of the book of Revelation that when Jesus Christ comes back, he is going to establish his kingdom forever. It's an eternal kingdom that shall last forever and ever and ever. And I want you to know the believer is no longer an American citizen. Now listen to this. Where freedom, individuality, democracy, capitalism, tolerance govern and rule our lives. We are now citizens of heaven where the values of heaven need to rule and reign in our lives and our minds. So let me ask you this question. Do you know what heaven's values are? Someone asked you, you're a citizen of heaven now. That's your identity. That's at least one of them. What does it mean? What are the values of the citizen of heaven? What are the values of heaven? Well, there's really just two. I'm going to give them to you. The first value in heaven is this. Did you know that heaven is not a democracy? A lot of people don't know that. Heaven is a dictatorship. God is the dictator of the universe, and that means three things. Number one, he is always right. Number two, God does not negotiate. And number three, he demands obedience to his commands because they are true, they are right, and they are good. They are not suggestions, as a lot of people think. And finally, value number two. Skip, can you put up value number two here? So just two simple values. Here's value number two, Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 38. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your... Oh, wow. And with all of your... And with all of your... This is the first... This is the first and the greatest commandment. I am to love the Lord my God with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind. That is in my entire being. What does that mean in reality? Anybody know what that means in reality? I'll tell you what it means in reality. Refer back to value number one. God is a dictator. That's what it means. That's what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It means to recognize that God is always right. God does not negotiate, and his commands right here are not suggestions. He really expects us to obey. He expects obedience to his commands. That's what it really means. So if someone says, I really just love Jesus, I just love him, See, most people think it's, it's about emotion. I, I feel emotional about Jesus. I might even cry about Jesus. But it's not an emotional thing. If you say that you love Jesus, what you're saying is, is that you're obedient to him. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will. Ah, well, I didn't hear that very loud. If you love me, you will. Do you understand that? So when we say that we love God, we will be obedient to him. Now, there's a second part to value number two. Skip, can you put it up? Here's the second part. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love people as you love or take care of yourself is what that is saying. Did you notice That in the values of heaven, external freedom isn't referred to. Individuality isn't talked about. Money, houses, cars, fame, 
titles, degrees, the American dream. Everything that we think is a value isn't valued. What is a value ultimately is a relationship with the living God and people. You know why people matter? Because they're made in the image of God. They're made in the image of God. Have you ever thought about that? It may be fallen, but it's still important. They are made in the image of God. And that matters to him. And so what's important to God is that we love people. We treat them right. What does it mean to love people? Have you ever wondered that? Because the world gives always an emotional definition of it. So I want to remind us, in fact, I didn't realize that the thunder would be stolen there at the Advent ceremony, but love was actually talked to us about. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's called the love chapter. You want to know what love is? Love is clearly spelled out in verses 4 through 7. I mean, we all really ought to memorize these verses, all right? Should. We've gone over them before. I mean, they should be stamped on our forehead. They should be on your, uh, you know... Um, Bathroom mirror, refrigerator, dashboard. I mean, this is it right here. Love God, be obedient to him, love people. Here's what it means to love people. Remember, when you see the word love now starting in verse 4, what do you do? You put your name in there, right? So this is kind of tricky. Frank is patient, long-suffering. So that means when I go to Price Chopper for my wife, for whatever reason, God knows, I'll tell you, I hate that. You know, you have to go shopping. And I will only get a few items. So I will go to Price Chopper, I will stop, I will get a few items. I always go to the fast checkout lane, 15 items or less. And you know what I do? When I get into line, 15 items or less, you know what I immediately do? I count the items of the guy in front of me. You ever do that? No, I count the items. One, two, three, four, 17, lawbreaker, out of here. <laughs> Woohoo! Right? But see, it says, and, and no, no, God catches me up on this every time. And, and, and this is no slam because my mother's an older person, but it's usually an older person, and they've usually got 20, 21, 22. And you know what God says to me? Knock it off, Frank. Help him take the items out of the cart and bless him. Love is patient. Love is kind. You know what that means? Frank is kind. Almost everybody says, I'm so busy, Pastor. I'm so busy. And if somebody says that to me again, bam, you know. <laughs> I wasn't busy. Just tell me what your priorities are. But love is kind means that when someone comes up to me, I say, sure, I got time. I got time for you. That's what it means. That's all it means. I'll take time to listen. Because you know why? People matter. Frank is not jealous. That's a bad translation. You know God is jealous. There's a right time to be jealous. You should be jealous for your spouse. You shouldn't want to share your spouse, by the way. All right? That's just a little heads up, little tip. <laughs> means love is not envious. Frank is not envious. I'm not envious of someone else's success. So that means when I see the pastor down the street and they're more successful. Let me tell you, we all struggle with this. Just don't you know, write this thing off. I'm able to congratulate them. I'm happy for them. 
Frank is not envious. Frank is not boastful. Oh, now it's getting ugly. (laughs) That means you just like to talk about yourself. You know what? If you really love people, quit talking about yourself. By the way, you know, people amaze me. One one of the things, you know, my father really wasn't a Christian, but he said, Frank, you know, if you're wonderful, people will tell you you're wonderful. Don't tell them that you're wonderful. They'll let you know. So, you know, you know, he really had this right. He said, take an interest in people. This is what this means. Make other people successful. Take the time, sit down, listen to them. You, you'll do wonders if you do this with your spouse. You're going to get big points. Instead of just telling about your day, say, honey, what's important to you in making your spouse success, your kids successful? You know, I did love my father. And near the end of his life, you know, he apologized to me and he said, you know, uh, son, what could I have done better? And I said, you know, and, and <clears throat> it was hard for me. I said, dad, you know, all the years growing up, you never just sat down with me and just asked me what I wanted to be, what I wanted to do. You already told me what I was going to be. And he apologized. Love doesn't boast. Love cares about other people. It even gets deeper. Love is proud. Frank is not proud. Do you know what that means? It means that I honestly believe I'm better than everybody else. But see, if I'm a genuine Christian born again, then what's true? How can I be better than everyone else? What's true of a true child of God? I'm a sinner saved by grace. At the cross, remember at the cross, the ground is level. How could I possibly be proud? How could I possibly think I'm better than anybody else? Even if I am something great in this world. Love is not proud. Frank is not proud. Frank is not rude. Wow, now this, this is a problem for drivers. I love Christian drivers. They got, they got the fish on the back there. Honk if you love Jesus. And boy, bam! You know, they're, they're, they're right up against another car. They're cutting in front of people. Awesome witness, just awesome witness, by the way. Just, just honk if you love Jesus. No, it says it's not rude. That includes in the car. You can't just say the car made me do it, all right? Love does not demand its own way. Now, I want my own way. See, I'm not, don't, don't deny that, but love does not demand its own way. So when Susan wants what she wants, see, I, I give in. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable, even though it has not had its cup of coffee in the morning. (laughs) Hey, that's not an excuse. By the way, you know, people say, well, I haven't had my cup of coffee in the morning. That's why I'm a jerk. Or women, you know, sometimes say, you know, it's kind of, you know, that time of the month, and that entitles me to be a jerk. You know, no, no. There's no reason, you know, that entitles you and I to be irritable and to be a jerk. Does everybody get that? Just because something isn't right doesn't entitle you and I to be a jerk. Love is not irritable. Love keeps no record of wrongs. You know what I do? I don't keep a record of wrongs. I say, just Lord smite my enemies. No, I don't do that. No, see, that's not what we're supposed to do. It says, love is to keep, I am to forgive. No, this is not optional. With your spouse, this is not optional. Love means, I mean, when you forgive someone, it means you don't bring it back up again. You're not going to bring it up. It's, if, if you've forgiven it, you do not bring it back. And not only that, you bless the person 
who hurt you. Ouch. Ouch. And then it says this, love does not rejoice about evil. Well, that's going to cut out a lot of television programs. Most television programs exalt evil. It exalts wrongdoing. We don't rejoice in that. We rejoice in the truth. We rejoice what exalts Jesus, his values. We we, we, we exalt, we rejoice when Jesus' kingdom advances. And then it says, love never gives up. Love never loses faith, is always hopeful, endures through every circumstance. It doesn't quit. Can you imagine a world? No, no, seriously. Can you imagine a world where people were practicing love? Well, that's our first identity. I am a citizen of heaven. That's what you and I are supposed to be doing. We are supposed to be citizens of heaven. Then Paul moves on. He gives us our second identity. He gives us our second image. He says that we're part of the household, the family of God in Ephesians 2.19. And let me tell you something. In our day and time, that is really special because so many of us come from broken families. We come from dysfunctional families. And now Paul tells us that as a believer, we have a new family. We have a Papa, our Papa is in heaven. And you know the hallmarks of heaven, his family? Love, joy, and peace. Isn't that awesome? Love, joy, and peace are the hallmarks of Papa's family. So even if you come from a broken family, even if your parents didn't treat you right, you now are part of a new family. Now having said that, I want you to look at the person to the left and to the right of you. More than likely, they're a believer. Have you ever considered that you're going to spend the next zillion years with them? (laughs) Might be a disturbing thought, huh? You're going to spend the next zillion years with that person. So I have a small piece of advice. Learn to get along with them now, because guess what? God has a tremendous sense of humor, and he'll probably make them your roommate if you don't. All right, Matthew chapter 12, Skip put it up. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? Who's your family? Well, not about this. If you're going to speak in tongues, you've got to interpret it, okay? So well, who she, now, what is Jesus saying? Seriously. The other Christians, look at it. Look, take a good look. No, take a good look. See, do we really believe that? Let's just say, ask it, be more personal. Do we really believe that here at Bethlehem Community Church? You know, there is no question that during the first three centuries, that's when the church was the most effective. That's when it grew the fastest, during pagan Rome. And a lot of people have wondered, why did the church grow so fast? Why did the, was the church so effective? It's really not that difficult. It's actually quite simple. And the reason is this. I'll give it to you. Tertullian, 
Skip, can you put up this picture? Tertullian was an early church father. He lived around 200 BC and he was speaking about the Romans. And the Romans were looking in on the Christian communities. And here's what they had to say about the Christian communities as they were looking and observing them. They said this, see how they love one another and are willing to die for each other. Justin Martyr was another early church father. Skip, can you put up his picture? He lived in 150 AD or around there, and he wrote this. We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now being bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. But now, because of Christ, we live together with such people, and we pray for our enemies. You know, we looked at it last week. Jesus Christ, and only Christ, can break down the walls between people, between races, black and white, between husband and wife. He, only he can do it because in the end, when you really come to Christ, he loves a playing field. I'm a sinner, and I'm saved by grace. And the early church really understood that. Let's talk about Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome was another early church father. In fact, he knew many of the apostles. He wrote this in 100 AD about a person, a man in his community that he was over. He said this of him. He impoverishes himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows he can bear poverty better than his brother. He likewise considers the pain of another brother as his own pain. Our greatest witness to the world. I'm going to tell you right now, our greatest witness to the world is our unity in how we treat one another. The apostle John challenges us with these words this morning in 1 John chapter 3. Skip, can you put up these words? Let them speak to you. If we love our Christian brothers and sisters, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and our sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or a sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth, so we will be confident when we stand before God. Do you want to be confident? Do you? It says, I'll be confident before Jesus Christ if I've treated my brothers and sisters well, if I have really loved my brothers and sisters. If you have loved your brothers and sisters, and I, I don't know how to say this nicely, but if I was to say what is one of the greatest failings of the church in America, it would be right here. 
You know, we do understand family blood. And we should care for blood. I'm not saying that because that is also a witness. But our greater responsibility is to the people around us, the brothers and sisters. And I'd like to say, you know, I believe Bethlehem Community Church is beginning to do a better and better job. That's why we began to form small communities. Because we realized it's only not here can we really care for one another. It's really only in small communities that we can begin to know one another and begin to really care about one another and begin to practice this. If you're not part of a small community, I really challenge you to do so. Because this isn't something lightly that God takes lightly. It's really important that we take care of one another. That is one of our major witnesses to the world. I pray that they will say, when the world looks at Bethlehem Community Church, they will say, see how they love one another. Well, finally, let's look at the third. Let's look at the third and final image of the believer. We are a temple. Paul says that we are a temple. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Skip, can you just put that up? Together, he says, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the apostles, prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, You Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Skip, can you put up the graphic just to explain this? Here's what this is saying. It says, we're becoming a temple of the living God. Jesus is the cornerstone. You see those cornerstones? That's an important piece. If you're going to build a building and have the bricks in right alignment, the cornerstone is the chief stone. It is critical that you have the right cornerstone or your building will be crooked and it will fall down. From the cornerstone comes the foundation. It's the prophets and the apostles. When we're talking about the apostles and prophets, we're basically talking about the New Testament prophets and apostles. So it's saying that they laid the foundation, the New Testament, the gospels and the epistles. That's the foundation of the new temple that God is going to indwell. And then you and I, as believers, we are stones. And I just want to talk about stones just for a moment as we move towards closing here. All right. It says that we are living stones. You know, the desire for most people is to be significant. In fact, uh, Robert McGee, many, many years ago, wrote a book entitled Search for Significance. You know, and there's probably not a person in this room that doesn't want to be significant. And significance can never be found, by the way, in your own small world. Do you, have you ever wondered why the superstars, whether they're actors or, you know, they're musicians or they're singers or they're sports, have you ever wondered why basically they're not very happy? They're on prescription drugs. They're, you find them on drugs and, and alcohol. Uh, you find them involved in sex. You find them having multiple marriages. You find them buying all kinds of things, bigger houses, more houses, bigger cars, more cars, whatever. They're trying to live larger than life, and yet they're still not significant. You see, your world, no matter how big you think your world is, it'll never give you the significance that your soul desires. Did you know that? Every single person in here wants to feel significant and be significant. You should be significant, but you'll never find it in your own small world. In fact, you know, many, many years ago, the wisest man to ever live, King Solomon, summed up this world 
and self this way and in the pursuit of self. He said this in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting at verse 2. Listen to what he said. He said, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then it turns north. Around and round it goes, blowing in circles. River runs into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are never content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Some people say, here is something new, but actually it is old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past, and in the future, no one will remember what we are doing now. Well, now that you're encouraged. (laughs) Now, I want you to think about this. If you're a person of the world... Your life is meaningless, your death is meaningless, and your eternity will be meaningless. That's what he's saying. A person of the world, life is meaningless, no significance. Their death will be meaningless. And worst of all, their eternity is going to be meaningless, separated from God. But if you're a believer... If you are a true believer, then you have an incredible identity. Your life is not meaningless. You are a citizen of the eternal kingdom. You are a member of the eternal family. You are a living brick in the very dwelling of the eternal God. That is meaning and that is purpose. And Peter wrote it this way to encourage the believers back 2,000 years ago. You are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by the world, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And if you come to Christ, you are living stones that God is building into an incredible, incredible temple. Let me tell you, God doesn't use cheap material. He doesn't use second-rate bricks. If you are a believer, you are a living brick and of extreme value, and God places you right where he wants you in that living temple that he will dwell forever. I'm going to ask you again, who are you? Who are you? Listen to me now, because How you answer that question will determine how you see yourself and how you will behave. Who are you? How you answer that question will determine how you see yourself and how you will behave. Father, there's probably no more important question than who are you? And I pray now that we can answer that question. I pray now that we can answer that question truly. It's life-changing. The world flounders, and they can't really answer that question. 
And they're searching for significance, a significance that can't be found in this world. And I pray if anyone here does not know Jesus Christ, that even now, Holy Spirit, you'll be moving in their hearts and you'll be knocking on their door and they'll answer that call. Because in you and in you alone can truly be answered that question, who are you? I am a citizen of the eternal kingdom. I am a member of God's family. I'm a child of God. And I am a part of the greatest structure of all, the living temple that the living God will indwell forever and ever and ever. I pray everyone here this morning can truly answer that question. And I ask this in your precious name. Amen.